Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Greta Jasser, a PhD student at Lufthansa University, Bloomberg, and Dr. Ed Pertwee, a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. They're here with us today to talk about alt-tech and the far right. Greta and Ed, thank you for being here. Hi, Augusta. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. So Greta and Ed, I want to start off today with the big question of alt-tech platforms. You both research alt-tech, but for many of our listeners, and I'll say even for myself, I'm not very familiar with what this is. So could you give us a rundown of what alt-tech is and how they're able to generate revenue and be successful? Sure. Um, Alt-tech is essentially a digital infrastructure for the far right. It's emerged really since the middle part of the last decade. And that's in a context where major technology companies have been coming under increased pressure to take action against things like racism, misogyny, science denialism, misinformation, uh, and so on and so forth on their platforms. Um, So the alt tech ecosystem encompasses things like social media platforms, which are often modeled on mainstream platforms like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. But it also encompasses things like web browsers, web hosting services, domain registrars, payment processors, and so on and so forth. So really the kind of whole spectrum. But what makes these platforms distinct um, is that there's essentially very few restrictions on what their users can do with the technology compared to mainstream platforms. So there's typically very minimal terms of service and even what rules and regulations there are tend to uh, be accompanied by very weak enforcement. Yeah, let me just add to that maybe a little analogy that I like a lot that Megan Squire, another car fellow, provided I think a couple of years ago now about Alltech. She compared uh, Alltech itself to if a bully was put in timeout on a playground time and again, so he just gets a new playground built entirely for himself. And that is what she says is all tech. Of course, it has developed since there. And while all those platforms started off very much as copies of Twitter, of Facebook, of Reddit, they developed from there and became platforms in their own rights with their own Um, platform affordances, so with their own uh, possibilities of what users can and cannot do on these platforms. And then as of to how they generate revenue, that varied a little from platform to to platform. A lot of them rely on donations. So there is a section of users of those platforms who are very dedicated to the project of all tech itself. So they would donate um, for the platform we're we were looking at, which we come to in a second, you can have a pro subscription and many uh, users have that. You can donate and for $500, I think, you can become a quote unquote lifelong patriot um, as a status in your profile, or you can be an investor into the company. Greta, I really love this analogy of the bully on the playground getting a new playground built for him. I think it's a really great way to actually visualize what it means to create an 
alt tech platform that in many ways is giving them the same sort of benefits as sort of mainstream social media platforms that maybe you and I get the benefits of every day. And within this movement and conglomerate of platforms, you focus on one specifically called Gap. So can you both talk a little bit about what kind of platform that is, maybe how it originated and some of the key players that were involved in its development and its popularity within the alt tech space? Yeah. Um, so Gab is uh, a particular alt tech platform that's modeled primarily, but not exclusively on Twitter. And it describes itself, the way it presents itself is as a, quote, social network that champions free speech, individual liberty, and the free flow of information online, end quote. Um, but when they have to get to specific about saying who their kind of target market or audience is, um, it is, and I quote again, conservative, liberal, libertarian, nationalist, and populist internet users who are seeking alternative news media platforms like Breitbart, Drudge Report, Infowars, end quote. So, they, yeah, they kind of present themselves as this kind of apolitical or politically neutral platform that's just allowing anyone to come and voice their opinions. Um, but it's very clear that they are trying to appeal to um, the right and far right of the political spectrum, uh, particularly. And uh, just one one further quote that kind of um, will give listeners a, a, a bit more of a sense of this. Uh, so Andrew Torber, who's the founder of the platform, uh, when asked a couple of years ago uh, why he'd set it up, um, he explained the rationale by saying, quote, what makes the entirely left-leaning big social monopoly qualified to tell us what is news, what is trending, and to define what harassment means? It didn't feel right to me, and I wanted to change it and give people something that would be fair and just. End quote. So they're setting themselves up there as both um, a political opponent and economic competitor of the major social media companies. Absolutely. If I um, am going back into the history of Gap in particular, it became quite known just after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Uh, when just before that, it came out as part of the so-called all-tech alliance. So that was what Ad just described, uh, a conglomerate of developers, etc., to push this all-tech agenda. And when it started off, it had a very transparent appropriation of the Peppa the Frog meme as their logo. They've since changed that. It's now a letters-only logo. But because of that and because of the big boost they got after Charlottesville and members, it became known as this alt-right social media platform. And it even got boosts in memberships after other right-wing attacks, as our co-author Sabah Sanatu um, pointed out in a number of papers before we co-authored together. It then became quite known again after the Tree of Life synagogue attack in Pittsburgh, uh, which is one of the deadliest anti-Semitic attacks on US soil uh, up to date. And the shooter of this terrorist attack posted his very last slurs and posts on Gap. So after that, it got denied service by the upstream providers um, and was offline for a couple of days, I think up to a week. 
uh, and then got back online. And then it had another boost in prominence after January 6th. So the insurrection at the Capitol Hill, when it was said to be one of the platforms where uh, some planning happened and where people organized and grouped together. And of course, people came from larger social media platforms like Twitter just after the Trump ban. They were seeking for different social media types. I think that distinction that you both just pointed out of the way that they're nurturing on particularly Gab, a specific kind of community, right? And I really liked the quote that you shared with us about that they're branding themselves as a kind of InfoWars Breitbart breeding ground. But Greta, your point is so important about that these aren't just online spaces where people are talking, but they're also spaces where people are capable of organizing and planning out this high-profile far-right violence. I'd like for you both to drill down into what kinds of communities are active on Gab. Is it just this sort of most extreme far-right terrorist people or individuals or groups? Is it just the planners of things like January 6th or could groups like incels be active on Gab or do what other kinds of communities would we see on this particular platform? Yeah, I might need to add a little caveat about the January 6th um, comment I just made, which is we looked at the groups that were active on Gab just after the event. And at least in the open ones, so that are openly accessible, you don't even need an account for them. We didn't find a lot of planning happening. Gab doesn't seem to be one of the platforms that lends itself to planning either, because it's very open. You don't have the closed forum structure where you recognize one another um, that lends itself to more intimate communication, more narrowed down, down communication with a different or maybe with a known set of individuals. So at least at the points that we looked at, which, uh, and I can't stress this enough, is not the entire platform, but those that we analyzed, we didn't find a whole lot of planning. Let me come straight to the groups, Augusta, because it's a very interesting point. As I said earlier, Gap became known as this like alt-right platform. And I would say that was to some extent true in the beginning. So when Gap came to life, a lot of alt-right figureheads flocked to the platform and would uh, announce to leave Twitter or have a second account on Gab. But then it quickly ceased in popularity because it didn't generate the same revenue for um, the big figures on the right. Uh, it didn't reach as many people. The audience was different, etc. So we do find, of course, quite extreme figures there that were banned from other platforms. And that's actually where we started our analysis. So we uh, looked at those top users that were clearly identifiable as far right. Um, But from there, we actually went to find an early snapshot of QAnon communities, lots of them. We found a lot of Trump-supporting users on the platform. We did also find a good chunk of white supremacists. What we didn't find, what I expected and what you hinted at, was uh, male supremacist groups. So they don't see, incels in particular, don't seem to be very active or weren't very active in the period that we analyzed, which might be due to their own forum infrastructure that they have on other parts of the web. Greta and Ed, one of the things that 
is very interesting about these sort of alt tech spaces and just the the far right in general is that even though they do have differences and they can be very explicit in the way that they define themselves as I am I am a proud boy I am not an incel I am x and not y that they do create very strong distinctions even within a sort of overarching far right space but I'd really like you both to talk a little bit about what actually is uniting these very different right wing tendencies on particularly this platform what we found in our research um, was that much like other far-right communities, they're united by a sense of persecution and victimhood. But in the case of Gab, uh, and this is one of the things that one of, one of the findings that we personally found most interesting was that in, in the case of this particular platform, this victimology is a specifically techno-social one. So what unites them is this shared sense uh, shared narrative of persecution at the hands of quote unquote big tech. Um, so some of the people active on on Gab, who Greta was just talking about, um, so uh, white supremacists or white nationalists, for example, joined specifically for their racist and anti-Semitic politics, which got them kicked off other platforms. And so they see Gab and alt tech more generally as having this kind of instrumental value because it enables them to maintain some kind of online presence and continue to pursue those kinds of politics in a digital space. Some others have more of an ideological, and again, as Greta was just alluding to, in some cases also financial commitment to alt tech as a kind of techno-political project in its own right. What they all converge on is this conspiratorial narrative that left-leaning big social monopoly, as Andrew Torber, the founder, described it, is seeking to persecute right-wing or conservative voices. It probably won't surprise you or your listeners to hear that sometimes that big tech conspiracy narrative veers into anti-Semitism. So you find users saying things like, oh, of course, conservatives are getting booted off Facebook. That's because Mark Zuckerberg is Jewish, or on occasions where Gab has been deplatformed by its web host, you'll find people on Gab saying, oh, look, it's, uh, quote, the Jews trying to shut the site down again, uh, unquote. Um, so you do see that kind of merging of the techno-social uh, victimhood narrative with the more traditional far-right um, uh, uh, white supremacist narratives. Um, but what they can all agree on, basically, is this idea that big tech is out to persecute them and people who have their beliefs and values. Yeah, maybe to drill down onto the social technical, socio-technic victimhood um, and how it's different from other victimhood narratives we have seen in other forums as well. Because claiming victimhood for white supremacists is quite common. We have lots of studies uh, who found these narratives in uh, white supremacist white supremacist communications, and we even have this for some white supremacist forums. But there, the members reported that they would gather online because they felt ostracized because of their views in their offline lives. So they would gather in an online space. Now, this is somewhat different when we come to GAM which is probably also due to how social media now penetrates everyone's lives, everyone's life. Um, because now as 
get us ad explained, we have users flocking together on a different platform because they felt ostracized on another platform, which of course is very different from the offline uh, consequences we found before. And then there's a very interesting hashtag that we found time and again in our data set, which was hashtag GapFam, so short for Gap Family. So there is a sense of family, of community that is actively being implemented and pushed for that we as Gap users, so to speak, are a community that is distinct from other communities and we together are uh, have a shared identity. That's really interesting, especially it does tap into these larger narratives of victimhood that have always existed on the far right. But the way that technology is really glomming on to these pre-existing narratives of victimhood, of isolation, of not fitting into mainstream culture, it's really interesting to see that in a technology space. One question I did want to ask is a lot of our listeners are familiar with the concept of deplatforming. It's something that we've talked a lot about on Right Rising. Are a lot of the users that are on Gab, have they actively been deplatformed or is their decision to go to a platform like Gab a sort of self-selection? Them saying, I don't fit into this, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook and I need a different space, or have they been actively removed from some of these other platforms? I would say it's pretty much both. Um, so there is, or there was, um, it's probably better to say a thread where Andrew Tabas or the founder itself asked, why are you on Gab? Which of course was a goldmine for researchers, um, like us. And many people did report that they weren't necessarily banned from Twitter, but that they got, um, a two day, uh, their account was closed for two days or three days, depending on what the policies of Facebook, of Twitter, et cetera, were or they got a lot of pushback from their community. So some of them did say they got banned from Twitter and that's why they're there. Um, and others made the decision after having had like a slap on the wrist for the first time or the second time or the third time to then go and join a friendlier crowd for them. Yeah, I'd, um, I definitely agree with with that, I would add that I think at this point it's pretty clear that there is a relationship between deplatforming when it happens, and particularly kind of it sort of comes in in waves. When you see a a, a wave of, of action being taken by um, by major social media companies, um, you do then see a kind of downstream effect of that on. The user base of Gab and and related platforms. It's pretty difficult to quantify the scale of that effect because it's quite hard to get accurate data on the user base of, of a lot of these alt tech platforms. But anecdotally, for example, we can say that at the start of this year, when QAnon and Stop the Steal groups were being removed from Facebook, uh, the Gab groups dedicated to those same issues were growing pretty fast. I think it was sort of tens of thousands of users uh, per day. Um, and to the point where the site became um, virtually unusable for a few days, actually, during during um, early January. So the, the infrastructure clearly was struggling to cope with the people moving over. Um, so there does, there does seem to be this relationship. And I guess that's important for a couple of reasons. Um, I guess it highlights 
in one sense, the effectiveness of deplatforming, um, because uh, what you do see is these people being removed from uh, major platforms with very large user bases and then in many cases winding up on a platform with Gab, which is much smaller scale. I mean, it's grown, but it's still a much, much smaller user base than Twitter or Facebook, for example. Um, so it clearly deplatforming insofar as it's pushing people from these major platforms to all tech platforms, it does limit their reach. Um, but on the other hand, I guess it also highlights a limitation of deplatforming um, because so long as that is happening, there's going to remain a market for these these alternative platforms. That's not necessarily an argument against deplatforming, but it's just something that needs to be borne in mind that one effect can be to push people into these alternative spaces where there's less moderation and where they can potentially be exposed to people with other more extreme views and ideologies. Um, and I guess that's one of the kind of take home messages of the research that we've been doing, um, which is that there is this new emerging kind of techno-social victimology that we've been talking about, this shared sense of persecution by big tech, um, which does seem to be serving as one potential new vector for radicalization and recruitment into far right politics and far-right ideologies. Well, Greta and Ed, thank you both so much for being here. And I've learned a lot while you were talking. I pulled up Gab and it is an absolutely fascinating platform visually. So I would not recommend our listeners go hang out there, but it is just a reminder of how much this space online is really evolving and that these platforms are becoming very sophisticated and they're drawing users in. And then, as you mentioned, Ed, bringing them into increasingly more far-right and more violent spaces. So thank you both very much for talking with us about this today. And for our listeners, are there ways that they can connect with you online? Where can they read more about your work? And how can they get in touch with you? Thanks so much for having us. Um, uh, in terms of where to read about the research, well, the paper was recently published in New Media and Society. Um, so uh, anyone who's interested uh, can go and find that. And we've also, if, if you just... Uh, Google Gab and our names, I think you'll find uh, a couple of, of additional uh, comment pieces that we've published, which kind of uh, set out in slightly briefer form some of the, the key things we've been talking about. Yes, a big thank you from uh, me as well, Augusta. And I want to first start with, of course, men mentioning our two co-authors, Jordan McSweeney and Sava Sanatu, um, who are not recording with us today, but they had a great input into the paper so they shouldn't go unnamed and unnoticed. Um, and then for me, I'm a fellow at CAR, so I have a profile there and you can find me on Twitter at Greta Yassa. And I write for Open Democracy, for Rent Media, um, a lot of it on GAP. So if you're interested in the topic, go check it out. Awesome. Greta and Ed, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time. Mm -hmm.